Today we are talking about mocking, specifically to think of, to point at, to point at, laugh at, in a very kind of cruel way. And if you've ever watched the show, The Office, this comedy sitcom, it's a great show, and there's this lovable character, Jim, and there's this, he's like his nemesis, Dwight, and Dwight is a very strange character, and Jim just has a really good time kind of playing pranks on Dwight. And he's doing it in a, in a somewhat nice way, but there's a little bit of mocking going on. And so one, one episode, Jim decides he's going to dress up just like Dwight and act like him. And uh, it gets a big laugh in the office, in the show called The Office. And, and everybody's, everybody's like, oh, this is so awesome, this is so fun. And it's not too mean, but it's a little bit mean. But Dwight is angry. And so the next day, Dwight says, I'm going to dress up like Jim. And so he comes into the office dressed like Jim, and everyone's like, Dwight, you look great today. You should wear this all of the time. And so what, what has just happened is in Dwight's attempt to mock Jim, Jim is shown to be the more lovable character. Now, today what we see is God being mocked in the cruelest, most torturous way, but it is through the mocking that he goes through, that the world is saved and he is proved to be the most lovable character in all of the world. He is proved to be the God of love through what he's willing to endure. But the question is this, why? Why would God allow himself to be mocked? I mean, the whole premise of Christianity is God has come into the world, he dies on the cross for our sins, he's risen from the grave to bring us to life. Okay, but why, wouldn't God, why would God just get right to it? Why would he come into the world and endure all of this mocking before the cross? That is the great question. Today we're going to look at the four reasons why God was willing to be mocked. So here they are. The first reason God's mocked is because... The Bible says it's going to happen. Second reason, to expose our own false kings that are sitting upon the throne of our own hearts. Third, to show us the way of the kingdom and the way of the kingdom. And then fourth, to get into our hearts. We're in John 19. We've been walking through the book of John. We're like a year and a half in almost now. And we're going to read verses 1 through 16. So here you go. It's up on the screen. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. This is like a form of punishment. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns in a purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, 
you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. So Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now, let me just walk you through what's going on here. Let me just walk you through this process of Jesus, the Son of God, being mocked. They start off by making fun of Jesus because he is claimed to be the Son of God. He's claiming to be the King of Kings. And so they start mocking him. And here's how it would have started. The Roman soldiers, they took and gave him a crown of thorns. Now, this crown of thorns would have been made out of date palms. And these date palms would have been twisted around in such a way to form a crown. Now, the, the thorns on this date palm would have been up to 12 inches long. And so when it's placed upon his head, it would have dug into his skull and probably the thorns would have gone down upon his face, deforming what his face would have looked like. So you can't even recognize who he is. And then he was likely beaten as all of this was happened. And then he's getting given a robe to wear, signifying royalty. Another way he's being mocked. And then the soldiers would have continued mocking him. This is kind of a Roman custom at the time, like this mocking form of acting things out. So the Roman, the Roman soldiers would have came up to him and kind of bowed before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, but doing it in such a way that they're making fun of him, slapping him in the face while all this is happening. And while this is happening, you can like picture... You can picture them kind of like the way we give high fives or fifth bumps, like somebody says something like really demeaning to them, and someone's like, oh, that was a good one. You got the son of God. Good job. Ha, ha, ha. And there's this kind of this laughter that's erupting as they're mocking him and making fun of him. And then after all this is happening, they're walking up and slapping him in the face. And at some point after all this happens, Pilate takes Jesus and brings him before the Jewish leaders, the the religious elite of the day. And what Pilate is trying to do here is because Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent. So Pilate's trying to get Jesus in front of the Jewish leaders looking bad enough so that they'll say, okay, the punishment is enough, let's let him go. But the Jewish elite, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the day say, no, crucify him. And so now at this point, there are three types of, of flogging that happens. And this, once they say crucify him, that would have started this the most torturous form of flogging or of punishment. And what Pilate would have had him done is he would have been wrapped around a pole, tied to a pole, and they would have taken a whip. And because Jesus isn't a Roman citizen, what they do is at the end of this whip, they would put pieces of bone or metal or lead. And these little pieces are shaped in such a way so that when Jesus is whipped, the the pieces of bone, metal, or lead grip onto his flesh. And when the when the whip is pulled back, his flesh is actually torn from his body. And in this time, so when they did this, what happens is the flesh would actually be torn and bones are, are exposed a lot of the time. And even it would get, they'd get them in the stomach and actually the insides of their stomach are exposed. I hope you didn't eat too much of a breakfast this morning. 
<laughs> so this is likely why Jesus died so quickly, because a crucifixion typically would last three days. But he dies, uh, he dies very, very early because of how torturous the punishment was beforehand, how torturous the flogging was, and that's why he couldn't probably carry his cross. Now, what I want you to really see, so while that is intense, what I want you to really see is that in the Old Testament, all of this was said before this happened, the Old Testament kept telling us, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Now, it's so important that you catch this because, listen, if you are feeling plagued with doubts, if you're like, you know, I like Christianity, but I'm not sure if I'm all the way in, if there's something keeping you from doing that, or if you are a Christian and you just keep getting plagued with doubts, what Jesus says is, don't look at the things that I'm doing. Look at what the Bible says about me and watch the things that are about to happen to me. And he says, if you will do that, that's going to solidify your faith in me. He said, that is the greatest proof that I am who I say I am. So what I want to do is I'm going to look real quickly at Isaiah 52 and 53. Now, okay, we're going to, we're going to go deep into this for, for a little bit, okay? So just focus the best that you can. Deal? All right. So Isaiah 52 and 53 are all about a suffering servant king who has come to suffer and die for the sins of the people. That's what all of it is about. Now, let me read to you how it describes the suffering servant king, who's talked about in the Old Testament. This is before Jesus. Here's what it says. Behold, my king shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. So he's exalted. Well, why is he being exalted? Well, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So basically, this, this is, he's being deformed, and because he's enduring this, he's being exalted. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Okay, so it is the mocking that he is going through that is the reason he's exalted. This is talked about beforehand in Isaiah. And also it says he was marred beyond understanding. Like we couldn't look at him and know who he was. That's exactly what the crown of thorns has done to his face and the flesh being ripped off of his body. See, he's not recognizable. Okay, again, it's being talked about. Then it goes on. It says he was despised and rejected by men. So God himself comes into the world and he's despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Okay, come on, stay with me. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God. So this is saying, like, all of, the, all of the punishment that's coming for us, all the wrath that we deserve is being placed upon Jesus on the cross, and he's afflicted for it. But... He was pierced for our transgressions. Literally, Jesus is pierced on the cross. Nobody gets pierced on the cross, but they did this to make sure he died before the day was over because of some rituals that were going on. But he was already dead, that's what they found. So he was pierced to check. This doesn't happen on the cross, yet it happened to him. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So he suffered for our sins so that we can have peace and know that God loves us no matter what we've done, what we will do. And then by his wounds, we are healed. Come on, stay with me, stay with me. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Okay, the whole premise of Christianity 
is that God himself has come, suffered in our place for our sins, so that we might be forgiven, and so that when he dies and is buried, our sins are dead and buried as well, and now we have life. Not done yet, though. Then it goes on and it says, He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. So Jesus is appearing before Pilate right here. And Pilate's saying to Jesus, Listen, I have the authority, I have the power to save you from this crucifixion that you're about to go through. And Jesus doesn't open his mouth. He presents no case, though he is innocent, he says nothing. Jesus is famous here for not defending himself, though he is innocent. Old Testament talked about it happening before it happened. And, this is even cooler, when God's people are suffering under this evil king called Pharaoh, called Pharaoh, God wants to rescue his people. And so in order to do that, there's, there, there's, death is coming for everybody. So what God says to do is take a lamb, slaughter it, smear the blood over your door. I know it sounds weird to us, but it was the normal thing back then, okay? So they do this. Death passes over all of the houses that have this blood smeared. Now, why is that weird? Well, who cares why it's weird? It's talked about in the Old Testament, and it's pointing forward, and Jesus is this new Passover lamb who was slain so that death might pass over us. Okay? It's being talked about. Now, I'm still not done. Watch this. John 11. Caiaphas, the high priest. He's there, part of executing Jesus. And earlier in John, he prophesied that Jesus is the one to come and die so that others don't. Not just the Jewish people, but all of the world. Now, I want to tell you a little bit something about prophecy. In the Old Testament, there was a very strict rule that if somebody said, God said this is going to happen, and it didn't happen, that person was killed. Because if you say God says something that is not true, God takes that very seriously, and so this person is essentially killed. Caiaphas knows that. He knows the risk that he is taking when he says Jesus is this lamb that has come to be slain. He knows the risk, yet he says it anyways. And I want you to know, that this whole premise of God saying something, and if it's not true, like, we should kill whatever saying whatever. L listen, just ignore that for a second. If the Bible says something that is not true, we should throw it out, stab it, trash it. But it never does that. Everything that was said in the Old Testament, pointing forward, is all pointing to Jesus, and we see him being the fulfillment of it. Guys, this is the beauty of the Old Testament. A lot of times we read the Old Testament, we're like, oh, I don't understand what it's meaning. Every single thing that you read, it's pointing forward to Christ. It is the beauty of the Old Testament, and if you will see that in the Old Testament, you will fall in love with it. It will speak to you, and it will, it will confirm. All of these doubts that you have, you're going to read it, and you're going to say, oh my goodness, I believe again. All right, now what I want to do, I want to get to the heart of the matter here, because the second reason that Jesus allows himself to be mocked is to expose our own false kings that are sitting upon the throne of our hearts to expose what we have sold our souls to. 
every soul is sold to something. Every soul is sold to something. We're always selling our soul. We don't want to believe it's true. Every soul is sold to something. And listen, Christ comes to ransom us. Christ comes to buy us with his life. And every other king that sits upon the throne of our heart, it offers something far less than what Jesus does. The pays far less of a price than a far lesser king, yet we keep on going to these false kings. So I want to show you. The Hebrew people are called to have one king, God. One king, and it is God. Yet here, look what they say. They say, we have no king but Caesar. They are confronted with what to make of the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the son of God, their very creator, and they deny him, and they say, our souls are linked to another king. Now, I want you to notice, Jesus is given a crown, and he's given a robe, all done out of mockery. And I, I just want to say, we do the same thing. We call him our king. If you're a Christian, you call him, we call him our king with our lips, but our actions Keep saying something else. And that is the same. With our mouths, we crown him king, yet our actions say something else. And that is the same as putting a crown of thorns upon his head. And by the way, Caesar is not actually who the Jewish people are really mean as their king. Caesar is just a pawn. Caesar is somebody that helps them get Jesus off of the throne of their heart. Because here's what's going on. Each and every single one of us, we have a throne inside of us, a throne that sits upon our heart. And it is made for the King of kings, the Lord of lords, but we remove him. And what we do is we put lesser kings in the place. And the reason we put lesser kings there is because we can manipulate those kings so that we can get what we want because we want to remain in control of our lives. Don't, don't miss this. This is how our hearts work. Our hearts trick us to say something or trick our mouths into saying things that we don't actually live like we believe are true. So what happens is when we are pressed to make a decision about the king of kings, it's then that our true king, the false king that's sitting on a throne, is exposed. That's what happened to the religious elite right here. So if you, okay, so you're saying, okay, well then, if, if there's a throne on my heart and there's something sitting there, how do I know what's there? This is simple. You just trace your motives you ask yourself why you're doing the things that you're doing. Okay, I'm doing this, but why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Let me show you what I mean. Here's a story. Uh, this is a, a Baptist, famous Baptist pastor who's no longer alive. His name is Charles Spurgeon. He tells this story. It's a fantastic story. Here's how it goes. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you're clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a whole plot of land for you to, for freely as a gift so you can garden in it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this. And so he said, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king 
and was leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low and said, My Lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I wanted to present it to you. And the king took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. He didn't love the king. He used the king. What are the motives behind the things that you are doing? What are they serving? What is the end to which why you are doing them? See, most of us don't want to go there because when we go there, it actually exposes the true king upon our heart. The nobleman didn't love the king. He loved himself, so he pretended to serve the king when really he was serving himself. And every time, every time we make something more important than God, we're doing exactly the same thing that the people did who mocked Jesus. And we say, no, 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 hold on. This was horrible what they did to him. I'm not doing that. Well, that was a visual representation, a historical visual representation of what still is going on in our soul at times, where we declare Jesus king with our mouths, but we mock him with our actions. And then by doing that, we're placing a crown of thorns upon his head. Giving ourselves the horse, not God. Every sin is a mocking of God. So why don't we just give him the crown? Why are we just like, okay, obviously the best move for me is to give you the crown. This is best for me. This is best for God. This is best for everybody. Why am I not doing this? Look, what we've got to understand is that anything that we put on the throne of our hearts that is not God will eventually destroy us. It will lead to a slow and painful death. And, and here's the thing. This is where it gets really tricky. It's not usually bad things that we put upon the throne of our hearts that are slowly destroying us. It's good things. It's great things that we make into ultimate things. So, our kids. We love our kids. And we put them on the throne of our heart. And here's what then happens. Because this is the place for the king of kings. But we love them. We love them more than anything. And so we go to them. And we go to them for our meaning, for our purpose, for our value in life. And what we're doing is we're suffocating them under the pressure. Because we are trying to get from them what we can only get from God. They have become the God of our life, and we go to them to give us meaning, purpose, and value, and yet what we end up doing is suffocating them because we need them. We're serving them, but we're serving them, and then by doing that, we're needing something back in return. So we can't actually serve them the way we want to be serving them. Guys, I know that's hard to hear, okay? I do this all the time. We're all doing this all the time, but let's just pull the veil back and see what's actually happening at the throne of our heart. And we do this anything. We can do this with a love interest. We can do this with our spouse. We can do this in friendships or with careers. We do this with careers. Men, this is something that we do all the time. We make our, our career sit on the throne of our heart, and then we wonder why we're lonely 
and we wonder why, I know men, we don't say that we're lonely, but we really are. We don't say that, but we really are. And we wonder why our family is lonely, because all we can do, all we can think about is our job. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'm driving, and I'm just thinking about the church and thinking about the church, and Elise is like telling me something, but I didn't hear any of it. Because I'm so consumed with the church that's sitting on the throne of my heart where God belongs there. We do this all the time. And there's also another king in our city. And the king that sits upon the throne of our city is called comfort. We want comfort. Let me show you what happens. So relationships, friendships require work. In the end, it's worth it, but anything great requires investment, requires time, it requires energy. But if you seek comfort above all things, you will sacrifice friendships and relationships for the sake of comfort. And again, you wonder why you're lonely. And guys, I'm telling you, we live in a city that is lonely. And it is lonely because the city has put comfort as its king. It takes something inside of us. It takes something, us a discovery of something that will finally take whatever's sitting on the throne of our heart, pluck it off, and put the rightful king there. It takes something, and here's what it takes. This is the third, this is the third way, the third reason why Jesus allows himself to be mocked. It takes us understanding the way of the kingdom and the way of the king. The third reason that Jesus is mocked is to show us the way of the king and his kingdom. Pilate says to Jesus, no, Jesus says to Pilate, Pilate, you have no power over me unless it's been given to you from above. Okay, so then we need to ask this question, why in the world would heaven, why in the world would the God of heaven give Pilate power over the Son of God? over the king of kings. Why in the world would God do that? Why in the world is this part of the story? Because greater things are being accomplished than what meets the eye. Unseen things are at work. See, Jesus can stop this mocking at any time, yet he lets it continue. Why? This is amazing what he does. He's disarming us. He's wise. And he's getting into our hearts. And he's disarming us by allowing the world to have their way with him. He's putting the powers of the world at shame by allowing the powers of the world to shame him. It's a disarming love. Watch. He's showing a love that disarms our self-worship and dethrones our false kings. Look, we read this to start out. Philippians 2. He is humbled, and by his humility that he endures, we exalt him. It's by us seeing what he's willing to do for us that we finally say, I do love you. You are my king. There's no greater king. This is the way of the kingdom. The way up is the way down. Watch. He's fighting hate with love. He's fighting anger with empathy. He's fighting injustice by giving himself over to something that's unjust in order to expose injustice so that we might turn away from injustice. 
It's amazing what he's doing. He's a wise king. And that means, here's what that means for you. He takes the suffering that you are going through right now, and he bubbles up joy in the midst of it. He takes dead bones and breathes life into them. He takes ashes, and he artfully brings those ashes together in such a way where he is forming us into who we're really made to be. He takes mourning and brings gladness. By the way, this is all Old Testament quotes that I'm telling you. He uses evil to let evil have its way with him so he might bring good out of the evil. He's like using evil to bring good. He takes rebels and allows them to crucify him so that he might save those same rebels. And he uses the world's hatred of him in order to show the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. Genius. And he takes ruined people and he grows them up into a grove. And then those steady oaks go out into the world and rebuild the ruined cities. Still Old Testament quotes. He uses our desire to remove him from the throne. So we want to move him from the throne. And he uses that desire to show us all the reasons why we should put him back on the throne. So we try to remove him. He gives himself over to it. And we go, oh my gosh, what have I done? He belongs there. And we never would have realized it unless he allowed himself to be succumbed to this. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is entering into the depravity of the world. He's entering into the sickness of the world. And letting the world have its way with him, he lets the world do its worst so that he can do his best in us. Oh, this is so beautiful. And then this is what that means. He will take your life that is at times so hard. And he will use the difficulties that you walk through to change you more and more into who you're made to become. He brings life out of death, joy out of pain, and beauty out of the ashes. He's the king. And when we go to him, we put him on the throne of our hearts, you know what happens? We start acting like him. And instead of saying, oh, that's the seat of honor. That's the seat. I want everybody to see how great I am. Instead of going there, we go to the back. And we allow people to move us up. They say, oh, no, you don't belong there. You belong up here. Because that's what Jesus has done. He sits at the lowest place and endures the worst that we can give him. And by doing that, now we realize who he is and what he has done, and then we exalt him. If you will see that the way up is the way down, if you will see the love that God has shown in doing this, you will start to love people this way. You'll start to love your spouse, your family this way, your kids this way. You'll start to love your friends, your neighbors this way. You'll even start to love your enemies this way. And you know what's going to then happen? you are going to have implanted in their lives glimmers of the way of the king and the way of the kingdom, and that moves them a step closer and closer and closer to him. But why still? Why is this the way of the kingdom? Why is this the way of the king? Why is the king to be mocked? And the fourth reason is because he wants to get into your heart. Here's what's going on. He disarms us 
by allowing us to stick the knife all the way into his belly so that the knife is now lost in his belly and now we're disarmed. And then the king of kings embraces you with a knife inside of his belly and says, I love you. It's a sacrificial love. And that's what changes our hearts. Not force, but a love that is willing to endure the worst we can give him so that he can show us just how much he loves us. And we say, oh, well, why wouldn't he just disarm us and then love us? Because the sacrificial love is the greater love, and God is love, so he always does what is most loving. You know, the Bible talks about a day when we enter in to paradise, and it says the trees are going to do something. It says the trees are going to sing with joy of the glory and love of God. It's going to essentially be singing of the cross. And you say, ah, oh, that's a metaphor. And I say, you know what? Don't be so boring. Have you ever heard wind wisp past trees and give it a high-pitched noise? Well, listen. In the world of love, in heaven, heaven, the world of love, where everything is the way it's supposed to be, there, the leaves will be sharpened in such a way that when the wind dances past those sharpened leaves, those leaves will sing songs of the great love of God that was displayed upon the cross. All of creation singing the cross because he loved you and endured the worst that we could give him so that he could give us the best that he can give us. Wow. All right, normally, normally we pray now, and we pray, normally we just do a quick prayer, and later we do a longer prayer, but we're going to do the long prayer right now. And we're going to specifically, we want to pray that this news of God's love doesn't remain here, but it goes out. So we're going to pray that prayer now. So pray with me. Father, our temptation is going to be to hear this and we're going to say, oh, that is so amazing. And we're going to walk out and we're going to forget it so quick. So God, we pray that the song of the good news of Jesus Christ would be constantly in our hearts, that the trees would sing somehow in our hearts so that we would know that this love is true and it is real. And despite everything that we are experiencing in this world, the hope that we have in Christ is true and it is right and is steadfast and we can go to it all of the time. God, we pray that the distractions of this world would not steal us away from this love that you have for us. That the hope that we have would turn into faith and the faith would grow and grow and grow. So we would remain steadfast as oaks. Rebuilding the ruined cities of this world. God, we're, we just want to confess to you right now that we have mocked you with our actions. That maybe our mouths have said something of you, but our actions have spoken something else. Okay, God, we don't want to do that anymore. We feel like we keep doing it and we try to not do it, but we do it more when we try not to do it. We don't know what the heck we're doing, God, so we just pray right now that you would send your spirit to us. Teach us how we ought to live. 
But mostly, God, we ask that your spirit would make our hearts sing of a king that sits upon our throne, the heart of our throne, the throne of our hearts. A king that will love us. A king that finally satisfies the deepest desires of our soul. God, we want to see you with our hearts. We pray, God, that your beauty, your worth, and your glory would be known right now. And that we would seek to bring your kingdom outside of these walls. And God, in the struggles that we go through, in the difficulties that we walk through, God, we pray that we would believe that you will indeed use those to bring about good. Not that we're not suffering, but in the midst of our suffering, we cling to the hope that we have. And God, we pray that we would be a community of people who are not lonely because we have removed this God of comfort in our lives and, and we have put you there and you love people around us. So we help us to love the people around us like you do. So we will have authentic and real and vulnerable relationships with people. God, there's so much that is not of you that's trying to steal us from you. We pray, God, that you would grip us tightly like you promise to be the shepherd chases us down. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.